Lyme disease is the most common vector-borne illness in the United States. Vector-borne means that infected pathogens are transmitted to another living organism through an agent. In the case of Lyme, those agents or vectors are black-legged ticks. Early symptoms of Lyme disease include fever, chills, joint aches, and often a very distinctive rash. If caught early enough, Lyme can be treated with antibiotics, but it can be tricky to diagnose, and if left untreated, Lyme can turn into a severe chronic disease involving headaches, heart problems, arthritis-like symptoms, and even facial muscle paralysis. Ticks get infected with Lyme when they bite animals who are carriers of the spirochete bacterium Borrelia burgdorferi. In the eastern and central United States, the white-footed mouse is a common host. Stopping the spread of Lyme has been the focus of Felicia Kiesing and Rick Ostfeld, two disease ecologists working in upstate New York. Over 20 years ago, they observed that highly biodiverse ecosystems in the forests nearby had lower rates of Lyme infection than did areas with low biodiversity. They called this phenomenon the dilution effect. So a tick could feed on something like an opossum or a fox or a bobcat uh, or a coyote and be very unlikely to pick up the infection. So that's a protective effect of those species. Felicia is a professor at Bard College, and Rick is a staff scientist at the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies in Millbrook, New York. In early December 2019, we interviewed Rick and Felicia in front of a live audience at the Cary Institute. They explained their research on the dilution effect and where they see the research going. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. So let's start with the sort of title of why we're here today, uh, the role of biodiversity in, you know, just in general. What, what's it good for? What's it about? And um, if, if you don't know, I'm sure most of you in the audience know E.O. Wilson. Um, years ago in the, I think, late 90s, early 2000s, he wrote a book called Biophilia. And he had some arguments in there about the value of biodiversity. But just in general, what are the, the sort of arguments from the ecological and any other perspective you want to take about the value of biodiversity? <laughs> tosses the first one my way. Um, so, I, so I think one thing that's important to start off with right at the top is that the, the whole framing of the question here is a very utilitarian one, right? We're saying, is biodiversity good for our health, making it about us? And so I just would like to start out by saying that we don't have to value biodiversity in only that way. There are lots of other intrinsic values of biodiversity in, that don't just rely on its utility to us. And that's one thing that E.O. Wilson himself argues a lot. For. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's really important for us to remember that because as we um, think about quantifying, for example, the value. It, as that waxes and wanes, that doesn't mean we want to take more biodiversity or lose more biodiversity or try to preserve more biodiversity. We really should be trying to preserve it as much as we can for its own intrinsic value. But there certainly are ways to think about how that kind of preservation could actually benefit us as a, as a separate category, a sort of utilitarian category. And this question of how biodiversity might affect human health is something that people get um, very interested in for the most part. We, Rick and I study how biodiversity affects infectious diseases, particularly infectious diseases that are transmitted out in nature, um, but there are all kinds of other potential effects of biodiversity on health, uh, like um, there's actually some fairly good evidence that biodiversity affects people's mental health. So actually being in natural environments can make people feel better in really substantive, measurable ways. Um, and there's actually some fascinating information about um, uh, the way being in more biodiverse environments actually affects your microbiome because mm -hmm. biodiverse environments tend to have more, bio, uh, more diverse microbiomes and those microbiomes can have effects on people's 
internal physiology because, uh, for example, there's some really nice evidence that kids exposed to more diverse microbes actually are less likely to have certain kinds of lifelong ailments. So there, there's fascinating work, again, about different that kind of biodiversity on people's physiology, on the way that they feel. Our particular focus is on how changes in biodiversity affect the probability that people will get exposed to infectious diseases, but that's just one part mm -hmm. of, this, mm -hmm. of this larger question. Yeah, great. Mm -hmm. so, so this thing you alluded to at the end, you, I think you call the dilution effect. So let's, let's talk about the dilution effect. So what, what is that? Well, so the, we coined the term, I think, the dilution effect. has been used in other contexts, but in the context of infectious disease, um, back something like 20 years or so ago, um, to represent how high diversity can dilute the abundance of pathogens and parasites in natural systems. Um, so we're, we were mostly interested at that time in um, the Lyme disease system, and we saw evidence for high biodiversity in the mammal and bird community around here, this very spot, um, to reduce either the number of ticks and the therefore the probability will encounter a tick, or the infection prevalence, the likelihood that those ticks will become infected. Um, so initially, the dilution effect was uh, an idea that we came upon in um, an inductive sense. So we were collecting information in a system. We were studying the, the way the system operates. And we realized that places where there were lots of species of mammals and birds seemed to have reduced tick populations and reduced tick infection. Um, we then developed a more deductive approach where we went broader and asked, well, why is this happening? Uh, what theory might underlie it? Does it apply to other systems? And we've continued to do that ever since. Mm -hmm. Great. So, so it seems like one complicated thing here is to understand causality uh, of these relationships, right? So, so a question might be, does biodiversity itself depress you know, the incidence of, of, of infections from ticks? Or is it that the places where there is high biodiversity, for some other reason, there's also fewer ticks or less, you know, less prevalence of, of diseases in them? So how do, you, how do you distinguish those things? Right, so, so we've, we've taken this system apart into all of its components for the Lyme disease system here. Um, and we, we actually understand pretty well what the, those different component pieces are. So mm -hmm. um, the, the effect, the, the buffering effect of biodiversity, so in a, in a high biodiversity environment around here, you have a lot of species that, uh, that they do certain things, which I'll elaborate in a second, they do certain things that reduce infection in the ticks. Mm -hmm. Most obviously, the ticks, when they bite these hosts, are typically uninfected. So the larval ticks, that this is the baby ticks that the audience probably is all very all too well familiar with. These larval ticks hatch out of eggs uninfected, and they pick up the infection when they feed on a host that's infected. But not all hosts are the same. So some ticks that feed on some species of hosts are much more likely to pick up the infection than ticks that feed on different species of hosts. Mm -hmm. The hosts in diverse environments, for reasons we don't completely understand yet, tend to be the ones that they don't pick up infection from very readily. So a tick could feed on something like an opossum or a fox or a bobcat uh, or a coyote and be very unlikely to pick up the infection. So that's a protective effect of those species that happen to be present in these more diverse communities. They're there, they're distracting the ticks, they're not passing on the disease. Distracting the ticks is another way to say it. We could have called it the distraction effect mm -hmm. instead of the dilution mm -hmm. effect. It doesn't sound quite as right. good. Well, yeah. 
<laughs> so, um, yeah, so that's one effect, that they reduce the, the number of ticks that are picking up the infection by, by having the ticks feeding on them instead of the, the hosts that are much more likely to transmit the infection. Around here, those are white-footed mice for Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of a, when I first ran into the idea, it was confusing initially, because if you have a more diverse community, you would expect to just have more things around. So, you know, hosts are bags of parasites, and so you got more parasites. Why in the world would you end up with less infection if there's more total risk? Well, so this is, you're not alone in being confused by this. <laughs> um, I, you know, we, I, I guess I could own that, but I don't think I should. Um, we, we tried to be extremely clear on what the dilution effect was, so we were surprised to hear that um, some counter ideas about the dilution effect was the notion that where you have more species, there are more parasites. So therefore, um, disease risk is higher. The dilution effect was aimed at specific diseases. So um, when we look at a Lyme disease system, or we look at Leishmaniasis, or Chagas disease, or we look at Hantavirus, um, the list goes on, and there are millions of people who are at risk of these diseases worldwide. Um, higher diversity for that disease system has typically a strong buffering effect. This has been shown repeatedly through um, comparative studies, models, and experiments. Um, the, the notion that um, a higher diversity area might result in more parasites is possibly true. There are, there are geographic gradients in diversity. We tend to see more species in the tropics than in the temperate or boreal or, or um, arctic zone. Um, and the same is true of parasites. There are more species at lower latitudes. Um, but the dilution effect aims at particular diseases. That's what it was devised to explain. And Furthermore, more parasites does not necessarily mean more of a burden of disease. A lot depends on which parasites they are and how they interact with each other. So there's even yet a further step before we go to get us from this latitudinal gradient in diversity of parasites to a similar gradient in infectious disease. And in fact, we know that among the emerging human infectious diseases, there are more in the temperate zone than mm -hmm. in the tropics. Mm -hmm. So is there any generality? I mean, you started to allude to there are a lot of systems for which we've seen these sorts of things, but are there generalities about the systems? I mean, Chagas is a very different disease than Lyme. Are there traits of these systems that sort of allow you to cast a bigger net about what, for what types of things do we see dilution? The, the, the underlying phenomenon is really driven by um, a fascinating, what I, what I think of as a basic biological pattern that we're seeing over and over again, and that is that the best hosts for a lot of diseases are the weedy ones that thrive when biodiversity is reduced. Mm -hmm. That is the phenomenon that ultimately underlies dilution effects and, and, it's, and, and other ideas like that. That is, you, you lose species from a system. The ones that tend to thrive are the very ones that are most likely to amplify the pathogen. Mm -hmm. So in the Chagas disease system, um, so this is a, a, a protozoan parasite that is transmitted to people and among wildlife by kissing bugs. Um, and it's tropical, but it's invading the temperate zone now. It's um, invading the southern United States. Um, and it's, it's not a in New York yet. <laughs> no, and, and we promise we won't bring it. Um, but it's, it's, um, it's a hugely important disease that, that, that affects millions of people. Um, and it turns out that 
there are similar parallels to the Lyme system. So if you look at along a gradient from um, urban areas or sort of the outskirts of, of villages um, into through agricultural fields and into pristine forest, you find increasing diversity in the forest and decreasing in the, in the occupied, human-occupied dominated areas. And the species that tend to remain in the human-dominated areas are often these small marsupials and rodents um, that are basically the weedy species that Felicia was just talking about. And they tend to be very permissive to infection by this parasite and the source of infection to the kissing bugs, which then transmit it to us. So there are these strong parallels among systems that differ in their details. And it has to be the case, I mean, the other piece of this that I'm hearing, it has to be the case that the parasites that we're talking about are shared among lots of different hosts. Well, There's lots and lots of infections that really seem to only belong to one or a few species. So that's one mechanism by which it can happen, that you've got a generalist parasite that can infect lots of different things. And if the one that it's best at sort of coming out of, the, the parasite comes out of one host best, and that host is the weedy one, mm -hmm. then you'll get this. But you can get it in other ways, too. So for example, you could have, let's say we have a mouse that's a really good host, it's the one that's amplifying the pathogen, you could also have that that par parasite really only affects, infects the mouse and comes out of the mouse. But diversity actually will help regulate the number of those mice that you have, mm -hmm. because the species mm -hmm. you're likely to add are okay. going to be competitors and predators. Mm -hmm. So there's, there are actually a suite of different pathways by which the loss of diversity can affect the yeah. abundance of those okay. amplifying hosts or the abundance of parasites coming out of those see, amplifying hosts. Okay. And it's that suite of effects that work all together that we call the dilution effect. It's the net effect of all of those things operating together. So, so can you give some examples of diseases that are not subject to the dilution effect? And, and what, what are they characterized by? Well, one would be if there's really not a natural um, stage of the, of the disease. So for example, mm -hmm. something that's transmitted human to human through right. direct transmission, for mm -hmm. example, mm -hmm. you would not expect to see this there. Yeah. So, so right. contact viruses from exactly, or exactly. There's there's no like opportunity that. for it to be diluted. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, the the dilution phenomenon essentially relies on some species not being good at transmitting the pathogen onwards, right? Mm -hmm. And we see a role of diversity in that happening out in nature. But we deal with that with human pathogens in an interesting way, right? We we I wouldn't call it a dilution effect, but we actually try to create dead end hosts for contact viruses and various other things. Like mm -hmm. we give, I'm sure many of vaccine you have had a flu vaccine, yeah. which is basically turning individuals into dead end hosts, we yeah. hope, for that virus. And that is a similar kind of thinking, right? Yeah. That to, you, you can use that as an analogy to the yeah. dilution effect. Well, let me see if you think this uh, other idea would be something that would qualify as a dilution effect. So we, you talked earlier about um, microbiome diversity right. and how people you know, living in diverse places have more diverse microbiomes. If those diverse microbiomes protect you against Mm -hmm. other pathogens, would, would you consider that also a dilution effect? Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. some evidence for this. There um, is. We, we've done some literature searches um, to ask um, what, to what extent has the diversity within our human microbiomes in our various tissues, our orifices, on our skin, etc., to what extent do they influence um, the expression of disease or the occurrence of, of disease? Um, and they often do. So typically the people who are studying our microbiomes 
are not necessarily interested in diversity per se, so they're not asking the question that's of interest to this discussion right now, but sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't know species diversity, which we do of birds and mammals and other things because they're looking at... Um, Larger taxonomic. Yeah, they're looking yeah. at genomes, so, so they have genera or families of, of bacteria, for instance. Mm -hmm. But there, it's often the case that higher diversity within microbiomes suppress pathogenic microbes and, and therefore reduce disease. And that's better documented in the plant literature where this is um, frequently observed in soil microbial communities where high diversity of those soil microbial communities, and those people are ecologists, they ask the right questions. Um, <laughs> they find that they suppress plant pathogens. Um, and so that would certainly be a dilution effect. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't necessarily claim to know what the mechanism is. By what means are these, you know, concoctions of lots of different bacteria actually stressing pathogenic ones? It could be by competition. Um, it could be that they absorb um, these transposable elements, these, these um, genes that can be shared among bacteria in these communities. But, but I don't think it's been pursued very well. Very well. To, to, to roll that back a little bit, I think we, you know, we, we see the world through this Lyme disease lens because it's the system that we know best. But actually, if you go out and look at what's, what's the evidence for dilution, people, people, not surprisingly perhaps, tend to be most interested in the human pathogens that show these Don't patterns. But, but a lot of the, the really great evidence is from the plant world, separate from what Rick was talking about about um, suppressive uh, diversity in soils. There, there are really great examples from crop systems and, and wild plants where you see exactly the same kinds of things minus creatures moving around you know, um, that we see in the animal world. So it really is a widespread phenomenon that these weedy species are really good spreaders of pathogens. So what, what do you think it is or what do we know it is about these weedy species that makes them such bad guys? We explored the idea that there may be certain um, correlations between the life history traits that might make species resilient to disturbance. So these would be the ones that persist when biodiversity is lost. They're the weedy ones. They stick around. They tend to share certain life history traits. They tend to live fast and die young. They, they tend to be able to replicate very quickly. And they appear to have a predilection for as a result of that, that life history trait, those life history traits um, allocating differently and perhaps less in total to defending themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you are, consider yourself a mouse for a moment, a weedy mouse that um, you're much more likely to die in the teeth of a fox or the talons of a hawk than you are of disease. And your fitness, your evolutionary fitness will be benefited, will be maximized by cranking out as many babies as you can before <laughs> that fox nabs you. So um, it might not be to your advantage to spend a considerable amount of energy um, defending yourself against infection. Um, and immune defense can be very costly. So it looks like that's a possible mechanism. It's been studied a little bit. Mm -hmm. it, I wish it were more. more yes. um, it's hard to work on. It's very hard to work on. It's very hard to work on, but that would be a physiological underpinning of, of that relationship between weediness <laughs> and tendency to support infection and, and transmit it onward uh, into the community. But there's another mechanism, too, that, right. that could be in play, which is that it, uh, if you think of it from a, from a parasite's point of view, 
and if you think a parasite is colonizing habitats, and you know, we and all these other species are possible habitats, a parasite would be under strong natural selection to, to adapt to the habitat it encounters most frequently. Right. So around right. here, the habitat that a parasite of mammals would encounter most frequently is a mouse. Mm -hmm. So that if the parasite can get around the mouse's paltry immune defenses and figure out how to set up shop in there through natural selection, mm -hmm. That's the habitat that it's going to encounter the most, and it'll become specialized on that habitat and then be able to, again, circumvent the defenses and come out at high abundance, but it's specialized in that habitat and then not as good at colonizing the other habitats. And then, Those things aren't mutually exclusive, sure, so sure. you could have both and, things operating. And that latter uh, mechanism that Felicia just mentioned might be particularly the case of, in a vector-borne pathogen, especially a generalist vector, so something like a black-legged tick that bites dozens of different species those pathogens that are in the tick will experience dozens of different potential hosts. Um, and that might result in selection of their ability to adapt to the most frequently encountered ones, which we assume is at the cost of being able to adapt to other ones yeah. that they might less frequently encounter. Also hard to study, however. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Just switch gears a little bit and um, talk about controversies surrounding this idea of, of dilution effect. And um, it feels like what you've said is super reasonable. I'm, I'm convinced. Um, but I, I also know that there's there's been a, a sort of long-running controversy in the literature about um, how common is the dilution effect and uh, are there other sort of alternative things that explain relationships between biodiversity and disease. So if you had to just summarize the the arguments of the other side and what, what, what would you say? We have thought about this very mechanistically. So that's the kind of conversation we've been having. How could this evolve? What are the different pathways? What roles do the different hosts play? But what it ultimately results in is a phenomenon that you know, if you lose biodiversity from a system, you, you would get an increase in the parasites in that system of a particular kind, right? So we've, we've got, it's a very particular set of mechanisms that would lead to a very particular outcome. Right. But that's been really overgeneralized, I think, to say that biodiversity should always protect our health, and so people have put up um, comparisons saying, if, well, that can't be right because here's a situation in which biodiversity creates, is this actually similar to what you said before? Well, mm -hmm. biodiversity could actually be a source of pathogens, right. so how could biodiversity be protective? So they sort of overgeneralize what the dilution effect even means, where for us it means this very specific set of mm -hmm. mechanisms and pathways. It doesn't encompass everything about biodiversity and everything about disease, and it, so it gets used, the term gets used very sloppily from our perspective, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing. And I would say also that not all of the evidence is as well worked out as uh, some of the best. There's some really good evidence, and then some of the systems aren't as well, mm -hmm. aren't as, the evidence is weaker. And so we have to be really careful not as to overgeneralize. Right? Right. That's true. That's true. But not all of it is equally rigorous. It's actually, as we keep saying, it's actually pretty hard it's to study. To it, yeah. And so some people, you, sometimes you can't do the experiment that you want to do. So you have to do a correlational study or a modeling study. And, People can pick on those things because the experiment is impossible. So some of it is that as well. We just don't have the, as high quality of evidence for all of these different systems. So if we asked you to steel man the strongest argument, steel man being the opposite of straw man, um, if you would steel man the strongest argument, the strongest example that's sort of counter to how you've explored, how you've worked on the dilution effect, is there one? 
can I respond to that for a second? Yeah. So I think that the framing of that really matters because if you'd say, what's the strongest argument against the dilution effect? I would say that's like saying, what's the strongest argument against rainbows? Like it happens, <laughs> you know, it's not a, um, or what's, the, I mean, to yeah. be hyperbolic about the dilution effect, but what's the strongest argument against gravity? I mean, it's, it's a natural phenomenon, right? <laughs> so we can't, we, I can't give you a steel man argument against the dilution effect. It's a natural phenomenon and it happens. Mm -hmm. So the interesting question from my point of view and where, where we, there's a rich conversation and controversy, I guess, uh, there are air quotes there if you're listening. <laughs> um, the rich conversation is around um, the generality, like what, can we predict it? Can we, can we guess whether it's gonna be in a system Right? Can we predict it? How often does it happen? We, right now, our evidence is that it happens about 80% of the time based on the studies that have been reported. I would say one steel man response to that would be, what if people are only looking in the systems where it's most likely to yeah. be found? So we really don't know what that percentage is, but then the answer to that is we'll go out and find systems yeah, where it doesn't right. happen, mm -hmm. you know, that, that fill out that landscape a little mm -hmm. bit and we don't have much of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the controversy, you know, the, so I'm going to switch from the steel man, too. I'm going straight to the straw man, but not to, not to create one, but to, you know, cry foul. That, 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 the, the dilution effect was turned into, turned into a straw man argument. So a lot of the controversy came about because um, Felicia and I were accused of claiming that it was a universal phenomenon. And we've never used the term universal in any of our scientific papers except to, to defend ourselves against the use of that term <laughs> uh, and that, that application. So um, it, it clearly is not universal. Uh, another complaint about the dilution effect is that sometimes people look at the relationship between diversity and disease in a particular system and they don't find it. Wonderful, that's important, <laughs> you know, that's welcome. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't mean that the theory is wrong. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily not general. Um, and so, and there have been meta-analyses, so groups that have looked very carefully at all the published literature that they could detect with transparent search terms um, and ask quantitatively, um, how often does it occur? And the answer is, far more often than it doesn't across systems. Um, so the steel man is, is, is tough. You know, there are certainly things we, many things we need to know about it, many open questions, um, but it appears to be a general phenomenon and we'd love to know more about what makes it work in some systems um, and less likely to work in other systems. Mm -hmm. So, so I would come back to that to say that, that, that the interesting you know, controversy to me is the richest conversations I've had with people about this come around with the question of whether we know enough about the, the dilution effect and about its frequency, about the systems in which it would happen or not, to make a management decision about some system we haven't studied yet, mm -hmm. assuming that the dilution effect is in place. So mm -hmm. in other words, we might say, okay, here's this system, and we're gonna preserve biodiversity there so that it protects our health, even though we haven't studied what's in there because we're gonna assume that the dilution effect is in play and it, we would be protected. Mm -hmm. And so I've had some really rich conversations with people about whether we could make that assumption because there's another argument that you alluded to before that that system is also, if the, a, a really biodiverse system is also a place where there could be lots of pathogens residing, right? right. So it, they, it could be dangerous to our health for completely different reasons, right? That you could have lots of pathogens there that could potentially jump or make us sick or right. something, and a dilution effect. And so how do we 
If we have both things at the same time, how yeah. could we make a management decision without predicting? Mm -hmm. And what I would say in response to that is that the evidence right now suggests that, that the pathogens most likely to jump to us are not the ones that are in the most diverse systems. They're the ones that are in that system when it's been degraded. Mm -hmm. So as, as Rick likes to say, it's far more likely we'll get a pathogen from a rat than a rhino, right? So you're gonna, um, you know, when you lose the system, you're gonna lose the big stuff, the big rarer stuff first, and that's less likely to be the stuff that's gonna give us those infections. But that is rich ground for asking, you know, can we make policy decisions about how to manage a system when we haven't studied it yet and we don't know how frequent the dilution effect mm -hmm. is in every kind of angle, right? right? We just have the evidence that we have. Right. If, if you had unlimited resources and time and you wanted to do studies on the dilution effect at some scale, you know, either locally or nationally or globally, what, what would you do? That's a really good question. Can I take this one? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I fantasize about unlimited money. <laughs> I know. Give us a second. Give us a second. idealized world. Um, no, it never happens. So I think about... Um, so incorporating the dilution effect into a broader framework in, in the sense of very important policy and management decisions for human health. I think about you know, some massive project. People who work with me here at the Cary Institute will be shocked that I'm thinking about a massive project again. <laughs> um, that, so let's say that there is a, a corporation that wants to put in a new dam or a new agricultural field or convert some tropical forest to pasture land. That those things happen a lot, actually. So having replicated studies where the consequences of that um, almost certain massive change in biodiversity um, were studied with respect to both infectious disease but also other kinds of human health issues. Because those, infectious disease is not the only thing influenced by these, these massive projects. And I would be, again, unlimited money, you said. So I would be concerned with who, who the beneficiaries are of these. So some people's health will improve dramatically because they will become very rich. Others, maybe not so, so much. So whose health improves, whose doesn't, and where are they? So you know, I would think that typically the local residents who experience in close proximity the disturbance itself are more likely to have a reduction in their health from infectious disease and other causes. Um, and others who don't necessarily live in that particular disturbed zone might be the ones who are preferentially having improved health or well-being in some way. So those are the kinds of studies that I think would be extremely useful, but um, not very feasible. Uh, maybe pieces of them are, and I think we could probably go after this in some way. Is there, a, is there a way, so you intimated that it's probably not the case, but is there a way that you could manage diversity in the interest? I mean, is there a sort of system where a specific focus on some facet of diversity is likely to have promise? In terms of management. In terms of where, management of, of risk with respect to infectious disease. Oh, I think, I mean, I think there are a lot of systems. For the systems that we know something about, I think we, we know what sort of, roughly how to increase diversity to reduce disease for, for diseases that we know would follow a dilution effect. It, mm -hmm. Increasing diversity isn't hard in concept, it's just hard in practice. You right. increase diversity by increasing the size of habitats, right? We, that's you know, the, the, the sort of clearest rule in ecology, really, mm -hmm. is the species area relationship. So 
um, you know, if we want more species around here, we need bigger, more natural areas, more con connected or whole natural areas. So that part in concept is easy. I mean, that, that for me is a bit of a segue to the answer to the question that, that Rick took, the, mm -hmm. what would you do if you had unlimited time? I mean, um, we, we can give advice or suggestions for people who want to keep risk low if they still have the option of that by protecting a large natural area, for example, or, mm -hmm. or, or developing it in a very smart way so that it doesn't become fragmented and lose diversity. Mm -hmm. But for me, there's this parallel question, which is to say, how do you manage diversity in habitats where it's too late? And that's what a lot of Dutchess County looks like where we are now. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of parts of Dutchess, particularly in the more developed areas, have been cut into these little patches of woods where you've got mostly mice. So what do you do in those areas? So that's, for me, some of it is to say, yes, we can think about how to prevent it, but how do we also protect the people who are living fully in the midst of it right now when it's too late to implement those same kinds of protections, the, the dream protections that would keep it from ever happening yeah, in the first right, place. Right. That's a good segue, good segue. I think, uh, <laughs> to talking more about Lyme and, and the Tick Project, uh, which is not necessarily about the dilution effect, but can you just tell us about the Tick Project? So it's a massive project, not quite the same scale of you know, some <laughs> dam in the Amazon that, that you know, floods a quarter of the basin, but almost. Um, <laughs> it feels like it so sometimes. It's a, <laughs> it's a five-year project that Felicia and I are, are running um, that is using two tick-killing interventions um, in entire neighborhoods. So we have 24 neighborhoods, um, and we are imposing these two tick-killing interventions, one of which is a fungal spray. It's a, a naturally occurring fungus that's lethal to ticks, but tends not to be lethal to other arthropods, um, non-target species. And the other is a bait box that attracts small mammals, like our weedy mice, uh, which are important hosts for the ticks, and um, kills the ticks on them with a, uh, a chemical called fipronil that is dabbed onto them in a tiny little drop and not released out in the environment. Um, so, and we have placebo controls for both of those. We're deploying these at the level of entire neighborhoods, meaning roughly 100 adjacent homes, um, and we're following various responses. Most importantly, encounters by, uh, with, between the residents of those homes, including the human and dog and cat residents of those homes and ticks, um, but also the, the tick-borne diseases that they uh, experience. Um, and so well, we're also trapping the mice and seeing how many ticks are on them and then sampling many of these properties to see how many ticks are in these people's lawns and, and, and shrubs and woods. And, and did you say you're getting disease information from the people also? So we are, sort of, yeah. Yeah, yeah we, we, we ask everyone, we have about 1,000 families participating in the project, which altogether is about 3,000 people, and I don't actually know exactly how many pets, but a lot of Similar fluffies number. and muffies. There are yeah, a lot of pets yeah. in the project. <laughs> um, and we have records. We have records on everybody. We know their names and how old they are and all that. Um, and we, we send everybody in the project, every household in the project, every two weeks we send them um, a question by the method of their choice, um, a text or an email, or some people we call because they prefer that, and we call them and we ask them whether they or anyone in their household has encountered a tick or been exposed to a tick-borne illness, and, mm. and we include pets in the, in the household. And if they say yes, then we pursue that to get more information. 
So if they've been diagnosed with a tick-borne illness, we follow up with them and ask questions about the illness and, and see if they're willing to tell us about it. And, and if they're willing, we'll, ask, we'll talk to their doctors and get mm -hmm. the, the, some of the diagnostic information to confirm the case. Yeah. So we want to give you the chance to sort of make any point that we've not given time for, something else you want to emphasize before we turn it over to the, to the audience. Anything else that we didn't bring up you'd like to say? Well, you, you, you mentioned that the... Um, so the segue, maybe just to recapitulate the segue, which was Felicia saying that um, if you could prevent the loss of biodiversity by preserving lots of habitat or preventing exploitation of the species, those are the two ways, main ways you lose diversity, you could reduce the likelihood of, of disease situation worsening, disease emergence, disease outbreaks and things like that. But in situations where there is already a very high level of disease risk, in part because you have fragmented the landscape, you have reduced diversity, what can you do? And, um, and the, the TIC project is asking that very question. So um, it is, and, and also the information targeting, using a device that targets the small mammals arises from that same research program Sorry. in which we were able to partition the effects of different wildlife species in terms of amplifying our risk, the mice, the chipmunks, um, or not, and we're treating the ones that are amplifying our risk. Um, so there is a connection, yep. at least a, 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 an intellectual connection between the dilution effect work and the tick project. Yeah, I guess I would add, just circling back to the dilution effect and building on that idea, that um, the, the species that transmit the disease well, that, that amplify the pathogen, get all of the attention or virtually all of the attention in the infectious disease world. We're always looking for what we call the reservoir. You know, who, which is it? You know, what's the reservoir of Ebola or whatever new infection it is? Everyone wants to ca figure out that species. And that species is super important, right? And so in, in the tick project, we're trying to sort of reduce the impacts of those mice by, for example, giving them some, um, a, a caricide on their necks. Um, but the other species that live out there in the wild w with them are less conspicuous. And what we've been figuring out as we unpack the Lyme disease system and then look at all these other systems that follow the dilution effect is that these more cryptic species that we don't think about because they're not amplifying are actually often playing these really critical roles. They're reducing the abundance of the amplifier. They're deflecting tick meals or whatever um, parasite you're trying to deflect. They're deflecting mm -hmm. that onto their own bodies. We have, some of you know that opossums actually eat a lot of ticks. And so some of this happens in other systems too where some of these the more cryptic species that we're not paying that much attention to because they don't amplify, they're actually eating vectors or you know, absorbing parasites into their bodies and not passing them on. Um, and so I think we, we need to turn our attention to thinking just about the amplifying ones, thinking also about some of these ones that, um, that lead to a dilution effect because they actually perform all these other roles. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. They're the, the sort of the unsung heroes, and, and they're the last species that a public health expert dealing with a new outbreak would ever look for. That's right. But they may be the key to mm -hmm. reducing our, our probability of getting sick. After our conversation, Felicia and Rick took a few questions from the audience. My dog has been getting a vaccine for many years against Lyme disease. Is somebody working on a vaccine for people? Yes. Um, um, there used to be a vaccine for people um, back in the late 90s um, that was pulled from the market. The pharmaceutical company withdrew it for a variety of reasons. Um, 
it was basic, it, it is the dog vaccine. It's basically the same vaccine. Um, and it was reasonably effective. Um, there was some resistance to the adoption of the, the vaccine in, in the human population. Um, it wasn't perfectly effective. For instance, it wasn't as effective as some of our other vaccines are against um, measles, mumps, rubella, and the like. And so there is work on a, a vaccine. There are some issues with developing a Lyme vaccine, including the fact that if you are vaccinated and decide that you're now safe against tick bites and tick-borne disease, it could have the perverse effect of, of increasing your risk. If you stop doing tick checks, wearing protective clothing, wearing repellents and the like, um, because you feel safe, you could still get tick bites um, and be more likely to get another tick-borne disease because it's not just Lyme, there are other tick-borne infections. So there is work on a better tick-borne disease vaccine or an anti-tick vaccine, um, so stay tuned. I think we'll probably have one. Whether it will be profitable um, and marketed and widely distributed, I think is anyone's guess. The other question is, do bears get Lyme disease? We don't have bears in, enrolled in the tick project. Um, we just do cats and dogs in the tick although project. Although there are some people who resemble, no, never mind. Um, um, no one has studied whether bears show any pathology. Um, bears tend to, there are one or two studies that I've seen um, where hunter-killed bears are examined for tick burdens in places where you might expect them to be infested and they tend not to be. So they may be like big opossums um, with a shorter <laughs> tail. Um, so, but we know next to nothing about the impact of a Lyme infection on most wildlife, bears included. But one interesting follow-up I would say to that is that um, when we make a graph of the size of a, a mammal, for example, here in, the, um, in New York, in Dutchess County, the size of a mammal, and the percentage of ticks feeding on it that become infected. Does that make sense? So we're trying to say what, how big it is and its relation to how likely a tick feeding on it is to get infected. There's a very tight relationship. So the smaller the, thing, the animal is, the more likely it is to transmit the infection. So if you followed that out, and if we don't know that it applies to bears because the way we figured this out is to bring that, those animals into the lab and put them in a cage for a couple of days. And um, we've suggested it to our field crews, but so far they haven't gotten us a bear and put it in a cage. Um, so we don't know, but if we extrapolated that out, we would predict that bears probably wouldn't pass on infection anyway at a very high rate if they're like the other larger bodied things that we have actually measured. I have a question about uh, a cryptic concern that I think many would share having to do with uh, our, our dogs and their close relatives, the the uh, foxes, the coyotes, and the wolves. Uh, first of all, are the, any of the latter species vulnerable uh, to uh, spirochetal or related infections? And secondly, w would you advise on a general principle a strategy whereby we revisit uh, the policy of driving foxes and wolves and coyotes out on the grounds that they're scary or dangerous because they may well hold some uh, hope for us to control the, the deer that uh, transport the uh, uh, ticks and the mice that are the reservoirs. Thank you. So 
dogs certainly show pathology from a Lyme disease infection, a Borrelia infection. Um, whether wild canids do is unknown. Um, so it, one might think that it's possible because they are fairly closely related, um, but it's, it's not been studied yet to my knowledge. Um, we do have evidence from our research here at the Cary Institute that Felicia and I are both involved in um, that areas in Dutchess County where foxes are present are, have a, a lower infection prevalence in the ticks than areas where the foxes are not present. That's also true of Yay bobcats. Foxes. Yeah. So, so foxes are one of our unsung heroes, um, as, as well as, as bobcats. Um, yeah. bobcats. Um, and that's true of infection prevalence, not just with the Lyme disease pathogen, but also with the pathogens that cause babesiosis and anaplasmosis. Interestingly, coyotes don't function in the same way. So coyotes are, will often evict the smaller predators, like foxes and bobcats, and then the, the opossums, which are our heroes too, and, and even raccoons. So you don't see that same effect where coyotes have come in and, and evicted them. So the, the management implications are, are things that we could actually work on. Um, we have shown this relationship. It's statistically robust here in the county. And just to be clear on why that happens, it's that um, foxes actually eat a lot of mice. So they're, they're, they're eating the amplifier, right, in that spirit, right? So the foxes are eating a lot of mice. And coyotes, even though you, you might think of coyotes and foxes as being fairly interchangeable, they're not. The coyotes eat a lot less mice. And the coyotes will drive the foxes away. Foxes, good. Yes. <laughs> I'm intrigued by the latitudinal gradient effect and assume that as we move south with diversity increasing, that there would be a beneficial effect in terms of uh, reducing the amount of um, tick-borne infections. Is, is that fair to assume? And then secondly, with the documented effects of climate change allowing tick-borne illnesses to spread north into higher latitudes, um, the, the whole movement could be northward. But, so speak a little bit about the latitudinal gradient, please, and its effects and how this might juxtapose with um, climate change effects as well. Well, one of the early um, explorations we made into um, the dilution effect as it applies to Lyme disease was looking across the eastern seaboard um, along our latitudinal gradient from the northeast to the southeast. Um, and we found a significant relationship between high diversity and lower incidence of Lyme disease uh, in the human population. So that was done at a crude large scale, um, um, and the, the relationship was in the expected direction. Um, so for looking, again, at a particular tick-borne disease, one might expect that along a diversity gradient, large or small, one might see um, reduced incidence as diversity increases. We've never claimed, and it's important to realize, that d diversity is not the only thing that influences tick-borne disease risk or other disease risk as well. So there may be other countervailing influences. Um, you can account for those if you know what they are, either statistically or in an experimental design. Um, but that's very important to, to keep in mind. Um, the other question was 
was climate. So, so climate change is one of the drivers of biodiversity loss um, because we are reducing habitat quality for species in at least portions of their range, um, driving them northward or up in elevation if they can even can afford to, to move to track the conditions that they've adapted to. So by that mechanism, climate change could exacerbate um, infectious disease. That may be the least of the worries. There, there are so many very horribly damaging aspects of climate change to human health, um, animal health, plant health, um, that the infectious disease angle may be um, less important than some of those other sources. Uh, but it can also, it can exacerbate the, the, the loss of diversity, the loss of that buffering effect, and could by that pathway influence human health. A very big thank you to the Cary Institute and President Josh Ginsberg, Lori Quillen, and Pam Freeman for hosting us at this live event. On our next episode, we talk with Paul Davies, a professor at Arizona State University. Paul's new book, Demon in the Machine, proposes that a better understanding of information will force us to rethink the origins and evolution of life, and perhaps even our understanding of physics. Do you think that life will reveal new laws of physics? Yes, I do. If we're going to have a new law in biology, something to explain uh, living matter, it has to be a new kind of law that embraces the system's approach. If you like what you're hearing, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com bigbio. That's one of the most important ways for us to fund this podcast. You can also make a one-time donation on our website, www.bigbiology.org. Another way to help us is just by recommending Big Biology to a friend. Think of someone you know who would enjoy the podcast and tell them about us. We also want to encourage you to leave us a review and a rating on iTunes and spread the word over social media. Thanks to Morgan Levy for producing this episode with help from Matt Blois. Michael Levine helps with social media and Patreon. And as always, Steve Lane manages our website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana for support. Music on this episode is from Poddington Bear and Blue Dot Sessions.